You can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, this morning we're reading verses 5 to 11 in Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthian church. And the topic of what Paul is talking about this morning is forgiveness. Uh, that's going to be the focus of our meditation and reflection. Uh, specifically, uh, Paul is talking about the church's call to forgive. He's not necessarily talking about personal forgiveness. Uh, I do want to mention that um, just so we have clear expectation of, of what Paul exactly is speaking to. And yet, of course, because the church is the people, the church's posture is ultimately shaped by what the church does, how the church practices forgiveness, how the church extends it and receives it. And so this morning, we're talking about being a church with a gospel culture, particularly a gospel culture of forgiveness. And so at this time, if you are able, I invite you to stand. The standing for the reading of God's word shows that we receive it with reverence. It's part of our worship to God as we stand to receive what he has to say. So 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, I'm reading verses 5 to verse 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and pray with me once more, dear friends. Father, because everything falls and withers except your word, I pray that you would give to us uh, attention, uh, an attention free from distraction, uh, and an eager anticipation to hear what you might have to say and speak to us. Uh, we, we know your word is far more than just instruction. Uh, it is life. And so speak to us your words of life this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, earlier this month, at the beginning of November, pastor and author Tim Keller uh, released a book on forgiveness, uh, which is important and relevant not only because forgiveness is a central tenet of Christianity, um, but as he addresses in the book, it's also a topic that's desperately needed for our culture today. Uh, the reason is this. Forgiveness is no longer considered the virtue that it once was. It once was the case that to forgive somebody was noble. To forgive somebody was virtuous. Forgiveness was praiseworthy and admirable. But that's no longer the case because nowadays forgiveness is often viewed suspiciously. Now, what do I mean by that? In large part, it has to do with being a part of a culture of outrage and a culture of demand. You know, our culture in a pursuit of justice wants often nothing less than blood atonement from those it finds guilty. Have you heard of cancel culture? The result is that forgiveness is often looked down upon. It's treated as a dangerous ethic. You know, some say it's dangerous to teach and tell people to forgive because Forgiveness really just works in the favor of offenders and, and perpetrators, and forgiveness robs victims and the offended of any power that they might have. 
And so some psychologists have even gone on to write that forgiveness is really an attempt to control people, right? If, if you tell somebody you have to forgive this person, you're really robbing them of any power that they might have. You're disenfranchising them. So the basic premise is that we should do away with forgiveness. And that's kind of the cultural landscape of our day today. And yet in the middle of that stands a countercultural Christian gospel message, one that is based on the central tenet of forgiveness. Now that tenet doesn't come merely as a moral teaching. The Christian message isn't simply you must forgive. That's not what the message is. The message is a good news. It is you have been forgiven. The gospel is an announcement that God forgives sinners and a divine act of grace is undeserved, it's unmerited, and we receive it by faith alone through Christ alone. You see, forgiveness is not just a core ethic of Christianity, what you need to do. Forgiveness is a core doctrine of Christianity, what God has done for you. And the two relate. The doctrine empowers the ethic. Now, What we read in our passage today is Paul's exhortation to the church of Corinth to forgive. He says it very clearly here in verse 7. He says, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort. Now, of course, it's easy to take any verse out of context in the scriptures and to apply it. But the words don't come to us in a vacuum. They come to us in a historical context. And here's what's going on. Paul is addressing how this church should respond to a man who's been caught doing sin He's repented of his sin. He's turned back to Jesus. And Paul's concern is that the church shows and has a gospel culture of forgiveness, something that we should all really strive for, a gospel culture of forgiveness. You see, here's the problem. Many in the church or many churches settle for having good gospel content. What I mean by that is we want to make sure that the statement of faith is gospel faithful that the song lyrics are gospel-rich, that our prayers are gospel-saturated, that preaching is gospel-centered. And so churches do a really good job of preserving good gospel content. But we need to go one step further and understand that churches should strive to practice gospel culture. What is gospel culture? It's when the gospel content informs how Christians live out the truths of what we say we believe. And one of those truths is forgiveness. It should be one of the aromas of a gospel culture. You know, at the beginning of the summer, I was invited by a friend to preach uh, for a weekend at his church in Southern Maryland. It's quite a bit of a drive. And so I drove down. As soon as I got to his church, the very first question I asked him is, where's the restroom? And he began taking me to the restroom. He led me through some doors and we entered into a large room. And as soon as I set foot in the room, I knew exactly where I was. I was in the fellowship hall. I knew that because I was met with the lingering smell of fermented spices that hit my nose. It instantly transported me back to my childhood church. And I knew without a doubt that that weak, old, lingering kimchi smell meant I was in a Korean immigrant church. I didn't need to see signs in Korean. I didn't need to hear Korean voices. I didn't need to see Korean faces the aroma of that church told me what the culture was. It was Korean. Well, in the same way, friends, my prayers at Cornerstone would give off an aroma of forgiveness 
that all those who walk through the doors and make this place their community and their home would know without a shadow of the doubt, smelling the fragrance of forgiveness, that the culture of this church is not Korean, but is gospel. So here's the main point of the sermon today. The gospel of Christ's forgiveness empowers us to cultivate a gospel culture of forgiveness. The gospel of Christ's forgiveness empowers us to cultivate a gospel culture of forgiveness. Now, again, in our passage, Paul is not writing to an individual. He's writing to a church, and he wants the entire church to adopt and practice this posture of forgiveness. Now, here's the background of everything that's going on. Paul, if you remember, made a promise to visit Corinth twice. He said, on the way here, I'm going to stop by and visit you, and then on the way back, I'll stop by again. So he went once, but upon going, he was met with such opposition in the church that it discouraged him. It was so painful. He said, I can't go through this again. And the reason is because when he went to Corinth the first time, there was a man in the church who led a rebellion against him, a rebellion that questioned his apostolic credentials. They criticized him publicly. And so Paul doesn't simply pull him aside or write a personal letter to him. He writes a letter to the church because this sin has now been public. It involves the whole church. Everybody saw this man leading a rebellion against Paul and nobody did anything about it. So Paul writes what is called the severe letter. And in that letter, he calls them to rebuke this man for all of the sin he has committed We read in verse five, Paul writes this, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. Well, Paul's saying this, he's saying, I'm not just writing this out of personal vengeance. The reason I'm writing this to you is because his sin, by putting a rift between my relationship and and you guys, that's affected all of you. So not to put it too severely, but all of you are affected by this. Now, Here's the thing. Uh, Paul had to write that first email, or (laughs) sorry, (laughs) Paul had to write that first letter (laughs) because when he visited um, and this man led a faction against them, the church did nothing. The, The church sat on their hands and they brushed it under the rug and nobody came to Paul's defense. And Paul was looking at that saying, this man clearly has committed sin. Why aren't any of you doing or saying anything about them? So he writes a severe letter and tells him, you need to discipline this man. Well, they received the letter and they listen. Paul writes in verse nine, he says, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. And so the church was obedient. They listened to Paul, they disciplined the man for his sin. But then they went a little too far. So then Paul has to write this letter. And in verse six, he writes, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. He's saying, you've gone now to the other extreme right? Sometimes maybe that's the way we overcorrect in life. We go one way, and then in order to make sure we don't make the mistake, we go too far the other way. We're either too cold or, or too hot. I, I remember growing up, and, you know, my mom would be making some dish and say to my dad, oh, I need, I need some potatoes. Can you go to the store? And he'd go to the store, and he'd come back with a potato, <laughs> one potato, and she'd be like, oh my goodness, how do I need to spell it out? And then, you know, sometime later she would say, oh man, I'm missing an onion. Can you go to the store and get an onion? And he'd drive to Costco and bring back a 15 pound bag of onions. And she's like, what am I going to do with this now? Hot or, or, or cold? All in or, or all out? 
That's the Corinthian church. First, they didn't punish him. They let his sin go. Paul says, that's not right. You need to punish him. You need to discipline the man for his sin. Then they punished him too severely. And what they ended up doing is that their discipline wasn't loving. It looked like angry vengeance. It looked like they were out for blood. Now, what's the difference? Discipline in a church is not to crush a person underneath the weight of their guilt and to make them feel miserable for everything wrong they've ever done. The goal of discipline is restoration. You punish in order that they might repent. They repent so that they might receive forgiveness. And so Paul says the goal of all this is to win the person back, not to lose them. Because if they feel sufficiently bad about their sin and even more, but they're lost, then we've all lost. So this is why he writes in a concerned voice in verse seven. He says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or else he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. It's really interesting that Paul writes that because who is this man leading a rebellion against? It was against Paul. And yet he's concerned for the welfare of his offender because he knows I'm not trying to lose you. I'm trying to win you. Paul's really just applying the basic words of Jesus. You know, Jesus, when he came, he said in Luke chapter 17, these words, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. That means discipline him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So again, the the church's mistake wasn't that they disciplined them, confronting sin, taking it seriously. That's right and necessary. Paul told them to do it. But Paul also understood that discipline that becomes vindictive and punitive, it's antithetical to the gospel. It goes against the grain of the gospel. A believer who repents should be lovingly received and restored by the church if they truly have a gospel culture. In fact, Paul doesn't simply suggest this. He begs it because he goes on to write in verse eight, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. I know he did wrong. In fact, I know because he did wrong against me, but you are to love him. It's, it's, It's crazy to imagine the great apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who speaks and writes with the authority of Jesus himself, begs the church. Would you embrace the culture of forgiveness and receive and restore this repentant sinner. You see, for Paul, he wasn't above the begging because there was nothing more important than to see the gospel take root in a church and begin to change the way they lived and practiced. I wonder how Apostle Paul would evaluate our church. I wonder what conclusions he might come to about Cornerstone. Are we a church and are we a type of people where the scent of forgiveness and comfort abounds? Or are we the type of church where the stench of judgment and criticism abound? You see, when there's no room in a church for sins to be repented of and forgiven, then the church becomes a courtroom of the law and nobody wants to come. But when we exude a gospel culture, then we become a safe haven. We're sinners who know they have sinned and yet turn to Jesus. They flock in order to receive restoration and renewal. You know, what would it look like for our church to walk that balance, not falling into either extreme, not, not downplaying sin, not dismissing sin, taking it seriously, but on the other hand, not punishing sin vindictively or just never forgiving offenses. What, what, what would that, that church actually look like? And I think it would look like a church 
where people would say, Jesus must be there. And that's the type, type of church that we should strive to be, a type of church that not only says at the beginning of the service that we open wide our doors with the welcoming arms of Jesus, but we do the very thing. Now, I shared with you already that a few weeks ago, I was out in Utah preaching uh, at a friend's church there, and I got to meet a man who shared with me his testimony. It was an amazing testimony. In that Salt Lake City area, you're either a Mormon or you're an atheist, right? There are really no other religions. And so he grew up an atheist. He knew nothing of any other religion, cared nothing about any other religion. Well, eventually he got married and he had kids, but uh, during this whole time, he was struggling a lot with substance abuse. And now having kids and feeling that responsibility, he wanted to begin to get his life together. So he and his wife decided, let's try out religion. I'm so lost. I'm so confused. My life is falling apart. Let's try this out. And so they attended their local ward. Now, the ward is like a local church for the, you know, the Church of Latter-day Saints. It's the local congregation of Mormons. And they went and they attended for a few weeks and he began making relationships with people. And he started opening up about his struggles with substance abuse. And basically they told him that there was no room for him there. There's no place for a man like you who's messed up as much as you have. It's better off if you left. So he and his wife left. His family left and hurt and wounded. Um, they weren't yet discouraged from stopping their pursuit because as hurt and wounded as they were, they were so desperate and lost that they still needed an answer. And so they began searching on the internet and they stumbled upon the small little PCA church in Jordan Valley. And the family went and he knew, okay, last time I went, we spent weeks developing relationships and I was hurt by the church. So you know what? From the very beginning, I'm just going to let all my stuff out. And so he began telling people about his addictions and his struggles. And, and what he discovered changed his life forever. Because he discovered that the church that had welcomed their arms when he had walked through the doors only continued to open their arms wider when he shared about his struggles and his addictions. The church told him that there was forgiveness for him, that they would still receive him. Now, this is very important. Did they tell him, hey, you need to own up to your sins and your failures? Of course they did. Did they say, you need to turn and repent unto the Lord Jesus? Absolutely. But here was the difference. Knowing there was forgiveness available, it actually set him free in order to confess and repent. Because he knew in this church, forgiveness isn't just preached from the pulpit, it's practiced among the pews. Now, three years ago, he stepped into the church, a lost hurting unbeliever. He experienced the gospel culture of this church. He and his wife, his wife gave um, their lives to Jesus. They became faithful members. And this past summer, he was ordained as a deacon in the church. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And this is an example of a church that has the fragrance, the aroma of Christ's forgiveness. But that still begs the question of this. Uh, what does forgiveness actually mean? What does it actually look like? And I want to point out something to you in verse 7. Verse 7 says that the church is called to turn and to forgive and comfort him. Now, that word forgive appears in English all over the New Testament. But here's what you need to know. The Greek word used here in 2 Corinthians for forgive is a different word than what's used in the Gospels for forgive. Now, I'm not going to put up the Greek here. You wouldn't understand. I wouldn't understand. And so let me just show you what the the nuance means by highlighting two passages that use this word, forgive, the same Greek word, but translates it differently. 
First is Romans chapter 8, verse 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The word that's translated as forgive in 2 Corinthians here is translated as graciously give. Charisomai. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, another example. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Again, the word translated as forgiven, 2 Corinthians, is translated as freely given. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, the fact that the word forgive can also be translated as graciously give or freely given helps us to appreciate that when Paul calls the church in Corinth to forgive, it has the sense of abounding generosity. When you, get, when you forgive, forgive graciously. Forgive freely. In fact, what do you notice about Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 2? All those things being done are being done by God. So in the way that God has given freely and God has given graciously, when you forgive, you forgive graciously and freely. Now that contradicts maybe some of the ways that uh, we feel uh, forgiveness should be, whether it's something that you've through uh, experience you've had in your life, or maybe it's just through uh, reading or seeing what's happening around you. But uh, going back to Tim Keller's book, uh, he, he does something really helpful here that, that I actually want to share with you just because I think it's really helpful. He, he basically says, uh, there are various approaches to forgiveness in the world. And he lays them out and he says, here's the first one. He says, the first view of forgiveness is based on cheap grace. He, he calls it the non-conditional forgiveness model. And basically, the non-conditional forgiveness model or, or, or forgiveness based on cheap grace is this. The only reason that you should forgive another person is if it benefits you. Right? You may have heard this yourself, or maybe you've even given this advice. Hey, if you hold on to that anger, it's just only going to eat at you. So you should forgive because forgiving liberates you from bitterness and anger and hatred toward that person. You don't want to be controlled by it, so forgive. And so why should you forgive? Because it aids in your healing. But the problem, of course, is, well, if you like holding on to the forgiveness, then yeah, it's also okay not to forgive. So that's one model. The second model is based on little grace. He calls it the transactional forgiveness model. And basically here, forgiveness is something that's earned or merited, right? Should I forgive you or not? Well, it depends. Do you deserve it? Have you shown me how beat up you are about the things you did? Have you shown me how repentant and remorseful you are? Have you paid enough penance, basically? And once I'm satisfied, once my justice is satisfied that you've paid the price enough, then I'll forgive you. Oh, your life is that miserable now? Oh, that's good. Now you know how I feel. I'll forgive you. Or you don't seem to be all that sorry. Well, I'll just hold off on forgiving. The third model is based on no grace. And it's called the no forgiveness model. You don't forgive because forgiving might get in the way of justice and accountability. He even goes on to quote some people who say, you know, at times it may be morally inappropriate to forgive because if you forgive, aren't you just giving a pass on that behavior? If someone has done something so evil and you forgive, aren't you actually saying that that's kind of okay? And so you shouldn't forgive because forgiveness is an enemy to justice. Now, against these three approaches to forgiveness, Apostle Paul shows up. He calls the church to stop punishing sins and to start forgiving. Now, where is this coming from? 
comes from this fourth view that's based on costly grace. And it's the biblical model of forgiveness. Costly grace says that the forgiveness that you extend horizontally, first and foremost, is forgiveness that you've received vertically. It's not a forgiveness that's generated in you. It's not a forgiveness that comes from within. It's a forgiveness that's received and therefore given. And Paul is saying that unless you understand that there's been a forgiveness received and now your hands are full of it, you can never give unto others. Because if you've not received forgiveness and your hand is empty, so how are you going to forgive? And the question is, how do we get there? How, how do we become a forgiving church? How, how do we exude a culture of forgiveness? And here's what's really interesting about this. The answer begins with this. What does it mean to be forgiven? If we Cornerstone want to be a forgiving church, I shouldn't stand up here and tell you, here are seven things to do to forgive. I need to stand up here and say, Cornerstone, do you understand that you've been forgiven? Because only when you understand that you've been forgiven can you then forgive. In our passage, what was the crime, the offense of the man? It was a rebellion that he led against Apostle Paul. And you think about the nature of his sin, and then you think about the nature of our sin, and your eyes are not too different. He led a rebellion against Apostle Paul, but we live every day in rebellion against God. What did he do? He, he questioned Paul's identity. He challenged Paul's authority. He opposed Paul face to face. Well, what is our sin? Is it not a challenge against God's authority in our lives? Is it not a questioning of his loving lordship? Is it not an opposition saying, my ways are better than your ways? You see, we're not very different than the man in the passage. We're guilty before God. We, we, we've sinned against his laws and his ways. And yet God doesn't meet us in our guilt, but he meets us with his grace. He meets us with the forgiveness of Jesus. God didn't swipe and sweep sin under the rug, dismiss and downplay. He took sin so very seriously. Because God is fully just, he punished sin. But because God is so gracious, he didn't punish you. And you're sitting there going, well, how does that make sense? If you punish sin, but he didn't punish me, then who did he punish? Well, dear friends, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, the one who knew no sin, but became sin, took on your sin so that the punishment of God wouldn't fall on you. The son of God, Jesus himself, was punished for your sins and the father poured out his wrath and mercy, turned away from his son so that he would turn to you in forgiveness and comfort. You know, the offender here, Paul says, I don't want him to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Well, God delivers us from the excessive sorrow of our sins so that we might be overwhelmed by the excessiveness of his love lavished upon us. This is the gospel. God no longer holds your wrongdoings against you. He's forgiven you. But God opens his arms and welcomes you in which means he comforts you. 
You see, how do we grow in becoming a forgiving type of people? Well, it doesn't happen when we work hard at forgiving others. It happens first when we understand how much we've been forgiven. Ultimately, it's the gospel of Christ's forgiveness that empowers us to cultivate a culture of forgiveness. And two are linked together. You know, may, you may have heard it, it true, uh, heard it said and, and find it to be true that hurting people hurt people. Well, isn't it equally true that forgiving, forgiven people forgive people? And so then what is the church? The church is not a place. The church is not an organization. The church is not an institution. The church is a gathering of the forgiven, redeemed people of God. You know, there's a famous story about the evangelist John Wesley and a general named James Orglethorpe. And one evening, Wesley was out walking and missed uh, the camp. And he heard a great commotion in a cabin. And so he entered to see what was going on. And there he found the general livid. He was angry. He was upset. And he began berating this man for an offense he had committed against him. And as he was throwing and hurling insults and threats, he finally punctuated at the very end saying, and I never forgive. To which John Wesley then looked at him and said, well then, sir, I hope you never sin. (laughs) Yes, if you never sin, you never need to forgive because you didn't need it yourself. But if you have sinned and you have received it, how can you not forgive? Let me ask you in this church, how many of you would be so bold as to claim that you have never sinned? Well, if we have all sinned, then I know exactly what kind of church we should be. A church that invests to forgive others. Paul wraps up his section in an interesting way. It's not with an encouragement. He ends this section with a warning. Look with me at verses 10 and 11, where he writes, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Why why did Paul forgive? So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul's saying, if you're a church that doesn't give the aroma of forgiveness and comfort, but gives the odor of judgment and criticism, then you are falling right into Satan's designs. Because a church where a gospel culture of forgiveness doesn't abound, but a culture of legalism or self-righteousness or moral superiority or looking down upon others or scoffing at their sins or letting them know there's no place in this church for people like you, That's a church where the gospel is lost and Jesus is forgotten. And Satan would love and delight over that kind of church, a kind of church where forgiveness is only extended based on cheap grace or little grace or no grace. But Satan will be frustrated and furious over churches where forgiveness abounds because the people in the church have tasted and seen and experienced the costly grace of God given to us in Jesus who forgives us our sins. That's the kind of church that we should be. Now let me just wrap up by summarizing summarizing this sermon in three points. Something for you to reflect on this week. 
It'll be sent out next uh, tomorrow in an email to the church, so you don't have to worry about writing it. The first point is this. A gospel culture of forgiveness doesn't just happen. It needs to be cultivated in the church. We need to work for it. I wish I could just preach it, and it would be. But dear friends, we must cultivate it. Number two, a gospel culture of forgiveness is cultivated not by how much we talk about forgiveness, but by how well we practice it. We need to actually live it out. To be people not who just preach it, but practice it. And third, a gospel culture of forgiveness is practiced not by our power, but by the power of Christ's forgiveness at work in us. We need to receive it first in order to give it. Let's pray.